Hello friends and welcome. This is the Lego Milestone, a space where we'll unearth life-changing stories, where we'll ask different faces in the legal profession about their successes, how they dealt with failure, growth, and other experiences on this legal journey. We're hopeful that through these stories, we'll see how to make it possible for all those who wish to take on this path do so distinctively. I am Peter Hawe, and I hope you're excited as I am as we share these untold stories. Welcome to yet another episode of The Legal Milestone. My guest today is a giant in the academia world, and he's one of the most distinct legal brains in Uganda. Dr. Anthony C.K. Kakosa is an advocate of the High Court of Uganda. He's a consultant with the World Intellectual Property Organization. He is a visiting professor at the University of Illinois. He is also a visiting professor at Cornell Law School. He served as the senior legal officer at the Uganda Law Reform Commission. He is a former associate partner at the CP Law Associates. He also served as the Dean Faculty of Law at Uganda Christian University. Presently, Dr. Anthony is a partner at Biencha, Chihika and Company Advocates, where he heads the intellectual property docket. Today, Dr. Anthony will be sharing with us his journey and how he has formed the practice of the intellectual property in Uganda. Dr. Anthony, you're welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be part of this. All right. So, Dr. Anthony, um, today we definitely have a theme as uh, the practice of intellectual property in Uganda. But before we get into that, who is Dr. Anthony Kakosa? Well, it's, they say it's always hard to ask someone about themselves. So it's easier for someone else to talk about that person, maybe the wife or whoever else. But anyway, I'll do my best to explain who I am. Uh, from the social side, Anthony Kakosa, my other name's Conrad Kawesi, the last born of Professor Joseph Kakosa who was a sorry, known lawyer in the country and known as the father of legal education in the country. I'm a Christian, a God-fearing person, in love with the Lord and in love with one wife, Lydia Kakosa, who is also a lawyer. Got three children, Josiah, who's 14, Jemima, who's 12, and Joy, who is 7. I have been in legal practice close to 20 years now. Studied at Macquarie University, went on to do my master's at the University of Warwick in uh, 2003, finishing 2004. So engaged in practice, that's when I was trying to bite my teeth a little bit into real estate law and going a little bit into intellectual property law. Then fell in love with intellectual property, so I turned away from teaching about tangible property to teaching about intangible property. <laughs> Uh, I'll talk about later what led me to that decision. And then after I got a phone call from someone who was not too happy about the president's use of their folklore, I got so interested in that area. And that's what formed my doctorate, doctoral thesis when I went for my doctoral studies later on in 2011 at the University of Illinois, finishing 2014. And uh, as I was wrapping up my doctoral studies, I was offered the position of deanship at Uganda Christian University, where I had been teaching before going on for those studies. So I was dean at UCU from 2014 until I cut short my second term of the deanship 
in uh, 2018 and felt that I'd done my part. I felt exhausted from all the administrative work and everything. And I went on for a sabbatical at, at uh, Cornell Law School, exploring whether the possibilities of staying there or not. But I think being the person that I'm so into more practice back home, I mean, I've had so many opportunities to stay and work abroad, but I did my six months there uh, teaching at Cornell Law School and came back and now that I was no longer the dean, I had more time at my hands, so balancing legal practice and academia. So I first decided to continue with the law firm that I had been tied to since 2005, which is the CP Law Associates, a firm that does only intellectual property legal practice, transactional work more than litigation. So I worked there full time from 2019 until March of 2021 this year when I joined Vienna Kihikan Company Advocates as partner in charge of uh, intellectual property. Wow, wow, quite quite an interesting story, I must say. But Doctor, we'll I'll I'll take you back. So you said. Um, the other name, which usually is an initial in your names, is the CK, which is Conrad Kawesa. Kawesi. Conrad Kawesi. Did you did you intentionally have to abbreviate it, or that came about because of, of my second question that is going to come? <laughs> you, you never choose your names. You're born that. Oh, these are the names your parents and grandparents have given you. Yes. But growing up, of course, with those four names, my dad always insisted. Um, Initials are very important. You should always emphasize your initials. They set you apart from other people. My dad was so much into us as a family protecting our names. He's a person who respected integrity. And that's one of the things I value out of not just being his son, but the training he gave me, that the name is more important than anything else. Because he himself had four names, Joseph Moore, Nume, Kakosa. And he would always emphasize putting Joseph M. N. Kakosa. And many people I meet today would always say, oh, your father always emphasized his initials. But another thing that showed how important the initials were, I had a brief stint teaching at the Law Development Center, um, the clinical subjects, before students would go full-fledged into the bar course subjects. And that was between, if I recall, it was 2004 to 2006. I remember one of those years, I was going through the names of the students who had been admitted to LDC for the bar course. And I was shocked to see a student called Anthony Kawesi Kakosa. So I was like, this is someone who has my three names. The only difference is Conrad. Yes. And I was, the first thing that came to my mind is, what if he goes out in practice and starts messing himself up? And people will say, oh, Anthony Kawesi Kakosa, you did this. You stole this money or the other. What will happen? Yes. So I said I have to start really emphasizing my Conrad name more. I mean, I'd already been doing so, but it showed the importance of using Anthony C.K. Kakosa, even the Conrad. Yes. A few years later, I was working on renewing my practicing certificate, sending my assistant when I was at CP Law Associates, and she'd come back and say, oh, they've rejected it, they've rejected it. And I asked why. So I personally got to follow it up. I met with the secretary then, who is now Justice Margaret Apini, and this is how we even became friends after that. Yes. And she said, oh, we've been rejecting this because from our records, you did not, you hadn't yet gotten your uh, 
CLE certificate, if I recall, there was something to do with that. But when they checked everything, they realized that the person they were focusing on was the other Anthony Kaweska, because not me. Yes. So she too was shocked, but she realized that, okay, we have many lawyers in Uganda who have the same first and second name. There's Andrew Munanura of S&L. Yes. There's another Andrew Munanura and there are many other lawyers. Yes. But it emphasized the fact that we need to be careful about the name. And since then, the law council changed. And now even when you check on CLEs, I'm written, my name is written as Conrad Anthony Kakosa, whereas the other one is Anthony Kawesi Kakosa. Interesting, interesting. Wow, yeah. interesting. So I, I just something you talked about while you were still talking about your dad. And we'll go back to your undergrad. Professor Kakosa, did you feel like you being you know a son to professor the late professor kakosa had a bearing on on your journey that we're going to talk about at undergrad interestingly okay. not yes the first time i decided to be a lawyer i didn't even know that my father was a lawyer <laughs> wow yeah. wow so how was back, that possible I, I was in I was five or six years of age okay i was really young I used to see all these books at home. Okay. And I would love grabbing a book and reading, reading a book. I mean, okay, maybe I was seven or eight. I was really young, if I should recall. And it's, it, of course, through reading this book, the Peter and Jen books, the Ladybird books, I don't know if they're still out there in the streets these days. I think somewhere there. Yes. We had a huge library at home by yeah. virtue of my dad's profession. And I would never question what he was. Okay. So at that young age, I didn't know that he was a lawyer or in academics. Yes. And I started talking to my sister about all these things. I remember I think I was in P2 or P3 and I was doing quite well in the English languages at school. Okay. And so I started asking my older sister, Josephine, that what does one do in terms of subjects after primary school when you've done very well in the English language? She says, okay, in secondary, you can update that to literature. So I said, okay, fine, I'm definitely going to study literature. Yes. So then I asked her, after literature, where does that take you in university? She said, well, it helps for lawyers. And I said, okay, fine, I will become a lawyer. So that's when I decided I'll become a lawyer. Why Why <laughs> did you discuss that with either mom or dad? Well, and, it's, it's just that at the time, the conversation yeah. was with my sister. I mean, yes. We were very close-knit as siblings. All right. But All right. it just happened to be seated there with her and having this chat. Mm -hmm. In fact, the chats transformed from having first discussed with her that I want to become a priest, a Catholic <laughs> priest. But even the Catholic priest thing was orchestrated from a little incident we had had okay. where I was very shy as a little kid. Now, we went for this wedding where my sister was one of the bridesmaids. That's Josephine. Yes. And I noticed everyone was looking at the bride and the groom. I was like, gosh, if I had everyone looking at me like that, I would probably pee in my pants. <laughs> I can't handle that. And I really need to avoid getting married because I don't think I'll handle everyone getting looking at me. <laughs> so you didn't like the so attention. Just the whole thing of the wedding festivity and everyone looking at the bride and groom yes. scared me so much that when I asked my sis what would be the alternative, she said, okay, people go into celibacy and they become priests. So I said, okay, fine, I'll become a priest. <laughs> Not knowing that the priest has to look at congregations every Sunday. And then preach the word yes, of God probably. Preach, yes. yes. So my mom got excited. Oh, I'm going to have a son who is a priest. <laughs> we were coming from a Catholic family at the oh. time before I converted to Pentecostal. Oh, okay. So it was through those funny conversations I would always have with my sis that later on I said that, but I'm doing well in English language at school because I'm always reading all these books. So yes. I think I'll go for law. 
Wow. Yeah. So it stemmed from that conversation. Yeah. Quite interesting. I would I would want to know what stopped you from being a Preston and converting. So now let's talk about your undergrad. Um, now that you've talked to your sister, decided that the law it is. Mm. How how did you know that? Um, I know after you've graduated, Makere University, like yeah. you said. So could you walk us through how your time at Makere University while you had applied and Right, so it's, it was an interesting time there. I joined McCurry in 1996. Right. And at that time, of course, my dad was still teaching there. He only finished, he retired from McCurry in 2000, the, the same year that I also finished. So I was very nervous at the time that, oh, finally I'm here and I'm going to be in, at that time, to the Faculty of Law, not a law school that it's called now. Yes. And being that he was teaching what we called introduction to law, which is now introducing law, he was the very first lecture that every student met. And that gave me goosebumps. I was very, very nervous walking into his classroom that morning. I remember my heart skipping. So where would your heart skip? You're going to meet your dad. Yes, you didn't I mean, have that relationship with dad we to, to confine relationship. It was, big part of it formal and a big part informal okay. friends in many ways. Yes. But I remember him having a conversation with me shortly before then that now that you're joining Mackay, it was the only law school in the country. Yes. I said, please make sure you don't embarrass me, study hard and let your grades be up so they say, okay, Professor's son is really doing his best. <laughs> so I walk into that lecture room. I remember this lecture was yesterday and I was thinking to myself, if I sit at the back and I'm relaxed, and I do poorly, I'm embarrassing him, I'm embarrassing myself. Yes. If I sit at the back of the classroom and I do so well and I'm quiet, they'll say he's cheating for me. So the best thing for me is to do is to sit at the front, keep my hand up all the time like it can't even come down or is participating in class. So that when the grades come out and they're really good out of my hard work, they'll say it's not because of the dad, the son is surely hard working all best on merit yes. and I think that's the journey having chosen to take that journey it's been the same since then since 1996 to this very day it became hard work after hard work reading ahead after reading not just at my it went on through my LLM journey my JSD or doctoral journey it was always trying to read ahead of the classroom trying to put things together and along the way um the lecturers would come and some of them were dictating notes, others would just speak off the cuff and you have to just keep your hand writing down everything. And of course, when you're writing down everything, your your notebook is quite disorganized and rough. So I'll go back home, I'll talk about whether I was staying at home and, or in a, a hall of residence. I mixed that up during the four years. Oh, all right. So I'll go back home, which was within Macquarie University, who was staying on campus just behind the guest house. Where Lokon, Professor Lokonyam and Professor Tamale currently stay. Yes. So I'd use the home library. I would get my rough notes and then get all the books off the bookshelf in the home library. Like if let's say we've been studying about jurisprudence or thoughts and their four textbooks, I get all the four textbooks, put them on the table and then redo my notes. Wow. Picking what's in the textbooks as well as what I've done in class and then I now have a whole new set of neat notes. And incidentally, 
for his jurisprudence in particular and a few other subjects, the notes I put together for jurisprudence are the same notes I use when I say I teach in jurisprudence. <laughs> I've so many years later. Well, well that's good. Well, but that's good. In the process of redoing things, I would understand them afresh. I would understand things much better. And I would tend to read at least a few classes ahead. So then we would have the next class and I would start talking in the classroom, telling the lecturers this and this, and they would say, yes, yes. So really pick up on that and they would get excited. And that's what would help me be ahead. In the first year, I was temporarily the best student in class. We had a class of 150 students. Okay. We had this student who was blind. He had been shot during the 1986 war. There was a stray bullet that went through his head and somehow he yes. survived. Yes. But, but he lost his sight in the process. His, yes. his name is uh, Mr. Kasule. Yes. But he was extra sharp because of being a blind student. Yes. So when we would have exams, he would do his exams separately and they would mark him differently. So when the first set of exams came out at the end of our first year, my dad comes home after the school board meeting, says, "Wow, you were the best in class. Thank you so much for not shaming me and you know making me proud." And then Mr. Kasula's results come out like a day later, and he's much better than me. <laughs> so he topped the class after that. Wow! And he wanted to lead us through the next uh, four years wow. of law school. Wow! But that's that's how I started doing things that I would organize my notes. And in the process, we started having discussion groups that would pick exam questions uh, from previous classes, go yeah. through them, and many times I would either volunteer. Of course, in the beginning I would volunteer, then in the end my colleagues would start asking me to lead the discussion groups. How did the shy boy who wanted to be a priest then, and, then and, the and now has has been able to be bold enough to face people in a discussion group? I don't even remember when the shyness disappeared. <laughs> it must have been somewhere around S5, S6. Yes. I just don't remember. It just went away. It just, on, I think. You know, incidentally, when you joined law school. Okay. This happens with all these people, yeah. Yes. So I started leading these discussion groups and I was enjoying myself leading them. Uh, the preparation process and all that out would help me to understand things better. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking that I think I'll become a lecturer. The way things are going, uh, oh. I'm enjoying this. And that's when the decision to become an academic, an academic. started. That that's... was a long third year. Wow. So, so like that's, was, quite, yeah. that's quite visionary. You are looking quite ahead. Third year, you already know you want yeah, to be want a lecturer. To be that's... That's quite. That's a quite a bold, uh, you know, move. But something I know. I'll. I'll. I'll take you back. Into, there's something you talked about uh, reading ahead. Did you feel like your father being part of of the school management and that he's a professor had a bearing on your level of being serious? Were you doing it to actually be the best of yourself or to make him proud? Like he said when he had a talk with you, uh, we've had of talks where somebody just says, "I'm doing this to make my." It was a mixture of all those things, but I think it was more about me tapping into that seriousness and seeing how important it was to me more than to him. I I would never really say I was doing it for him. I would think that would be a careless way of putting it, because like you said, I've encountered many people who say, oh, I don't like this course, I'm just doing it for my dad, and they're like, I think that's a bit careless or selfish in a way. Yes. I would think I was doing it more for myself. I enjoyed the law. I had always, right from senior four, senior five, senior six, when I would have discussions with my friends and everyone was saying, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. 
uh, I'd always think and even tell them that to me there's no way about it. It's either law or nothing. Yes. When we were applying in our senior six for courses, I would say I can't even think of a second choice. It has to be law. I can't wow. think of anything else. It, it was within my heart to take that point position. And in deciding that I have to study hard, I felt I just have to do it. I kind of slackened, in fact. Okay. In uh, first year, there's a time when I started going... Uh, I wouldn't say I was into parties or anything like that, but... Yeah, we would I, want to know, Doctor. <laughs> we would want to know if you had the balance of that life. Of, uh, yeah, because I mean, from what we're hearing, you are a very committed student, straight up from yes. having had a pep talk with Dad, and now when you joined, yes. But I, I kind of relaxed in my first year and didn't read as hard as I should. Okay. I should have. But it wasn't like about distractions or anything. I just don't think I was as diligent. Because we had terms as opposed to semesters. Oh. And I think these were three terms. I don't remember if there were two terms. Okay. But after my first term of law school, my grades were not that good. And I remember one of the lecturers coming and saying, oh, one of the students wrote this instead of writing that. It was a criminal paper, criminal procedure. I think it was uh, now Justice Lydia Tivatema in Kukubinza who was teaching it. Wow. And, and I think she was referring to me. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, I think I need to style up. I need to pull up my socks. I've yes. relaxed a bit. Yes. So that's when I got back on board and got serious again to finish that first year pretty mm. well the way i finished it so it, the, the hard work started from that time well so uh you did you have any sort of uh experiences very unique experiences say you didn't have them at your high school level and now you're at low school are different uh, people you're meeting you're like you said you wanted to be a person now you have a shock of maybe a culture uh how did you deal with uh creating uh being modeled into a new kind of a lifestyle, one that is has people from different walks of life. Uh, and you're all here at law school with the same aim to graduate and be lawyers, but how did you deal with coping up with that? The, the, the point at which you actually say, this is now university, because university there is, is leisure, there is, there is, you have liberty to do something at, at a certain... Did you have that... Do you have that liberty? Yes. Um, and it even continued all the way to LDC. Yes. That we were in 2000. Mm. That I, I get to encounter these girls. Mm. I mean, I was in a mixed school in primary school, Buganda Primary School. Oh, and I went wow. to St. Mary's College Suvi for senior one up to senior five. I think now I know why you wanted to be a, a priest. <laughs> <laughs> a Catholic set Yes. It was yes. I mean, everyone who goes smart loves smart. Yes. I only left in That's senior a good six school. on my own. Yes. On my own volition, I left uh, in senior six and finished senior six in Macquarie High School. I, I got a bit of a, a medical concern where they felt I need to be in a death school. Oh, okay. So I left so sorry. earlier. Mm. Um, so when I from the mixed school of Macquarie High School where I was mixed with girls but then now you get into university where they're all carefree and all these kinds of things yes that kind of also hit me like a, a bit of a shock I had this innocence around me that my parents had placed in me mm. not which still comes out now and then that I never see through people I take them for what I see and yes yet many people come with different faces Hyenas and foxes and things like that. And so many times I've been trapped in that where I give up my innocence and trust and it's always betrayed right. by people. Because that's how I grew up, seeing people and trusting them easily. 
So I, I get to see that at, at Makere and there were people who gradually got to know, oh, this is Professor's son, this is Professor's son. And some of them got to link up with me genuinely because they feel we need to study with someone who we will lift each other up. Yes. That's how I became best friends with people like Daniel Rohueza and Eric Katanga. People were also focused and we we partnered in many ways on that basis. But there are others who came on board because they felt there's something they needed to tap into by virtue of that relationship. Yes. And I didn't see it then. Yes. Mm-hmm. I remember one incident. We're getting to the finish of our first year and I go and ask my dad for past papers in his subject introducing law or introduction to law. So he told me that, oh, go and check at my study table. You will see a pink file. There's some stuff, there's some past papers there. So I go and open the file and the very first paper I saw was the paper we were going to do. So instinctively, I wasn't even a born again Christian then. Instinctively, I just shut the file. I closed it. I was like, oh my God, no. Then I dug deep and opened so many papers down and picked up an old one without like looking <laughs> and then those are the papers we used for our discussion groups so i said thinking to myself was he careless and he had forgotten that his paper is the one at the very front okay. or was he testing me because he's like he knows his son wouldn't cheat let me just test how good he is and send him to go and pick up the file yeah. i've never asked him that i never really got him to know but I started sharing with my friends that, guys, guess what? I mean, we're now discussing these past papers. That you know that when I asked my dad for a past paper, he told me to check in the file, and the very first one on the top was the one we we're going to do. And you'd imagine the reactions to my colleagues. Yes. People like Daniel and Eric were like, wow, you are the guy that we know you are. You honestly wouldn't pick the first paper. And then others were like, are you crazy? If you don't want to get that paper, at least go back and get it for us so that we can look at it. <laughs> And yes. I distanced myself from those who were pushing me and were not just kidding, they were serious. Please go back and get that one. I distanced myself from those people and stuck with the ones who genuinely wanted to study. That's, that's, that's being very grounded. How would you do that at a level where you would think that we've been told university people do all sorts of things, they want to go all out. How, how, that, how did you manage to be that grounded and I keep think, your position? I think in so many ways I would, um, I would thank my parents' training. Because, yes. like I said, I come from a very devout Catholic family. I gave my life to Christ in 2000, okay. where I became a Pentecostal, and I'm now, uh, I'm now currently somewhere between Pentecostal and Anglican. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't tie myself to religion. I just tie myself to the fact that I have a relationship with Christ. That's what matters. Yes. And so that's when I left the Catholic Church in the year 2000. But I will still credit my parents for grounding me in uh, family values. Integrity, following integrity and honesty. Uh, those are the kinds of things that made me not to think twice about cheating, not to think twice about um, betraying the trust that yes. is placed upon a person and working hard and, and earning your worth. You know, so that's what, you, what you work for, you get what you work for, you relax and sleep. You, you get what comes out of that. Those are the kinds of things that my parents you know, raised me and my siblings up to understand, to respect persons, not to always think that you have a blue chip on your shoulders and to think that you're above, you're above another person. People always ask me what, where I always have uh, interesting relationships with my students, for instance, yes. because 
I see them as other people as opposed to where you say all oh, these people are below me and I need to shout at them or to stamp on them. I, I, I never really understand that because I know that the people who I see as um, students today are my colleagues tomorrow. Yes. And I get even uh, clients from from former students and things of that nature. Yes. So I value relationships a lot and I value integrity, I value honesty and I value respect because those are things that I learned from my parents. All right. Ah, well, that's 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 amazing, Doctor. So the, the the other thing I just wanted to ask, still at your undergrad, maybe before we go into, did you have any challenges along the way at law school? Because you know, law school is not one straight path. How how would you qualify your four years when you look back? What what are those standout memories? Say, you said at this point I had a challenge with this exam. I had to confront, like you said, you had to confront your fears about. Um, uh, whether you had to impress your dad or you actually had to work hard, that was good. So, w- what are those standout memories that you had in the four years at your undergrad? And you look back and you say, did you involve yourself in leadership? Did you? Mm, yes. okay. so quite a few, quite a few, many. So, when I joined in '96, that's the year they started, or oh, it's the year before that that they started the four-year program for evening students. Okay. So, so you had the day group. We joined with, for instance, uh, people like Professor Chris Mbazira, who is the principal of the School of Lord Macquarie, oh. uh, Dr. Rosalind Karugonjo, Edgar Tabaro, those are people I, I joined law school with. But they did three years and I did four years. The question is why? Yeah. It's because they were in the day group and I went to the evening group. Oh. Now, the way it started out was that when I joined, I was admitted as a day student private but day my points placed me not in government but private but day okay and those were my classmates uh, professor Mbazira's, rosin Karugonjas, and all those others mm-hmm. along the way i felt that okay if the fourth the evening students are four years and the day group are three years if i study in the evening um, I can use my time during the day to do other things. The first thing I thought was to, to get a job, supplement myself, start getting some income, then I can come and study in the evening. That's 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 yeah. that's quite interesting, Doctor. You are a, a son of a professor, a lecturer, senior lecturer at the university. One would you think your dad can provide everything? What would make you think you need to get a job at that very stage? Because I, I feel that I'm growing older and. At some point, I'll be done with law school. I'll need to have some money on my account and the like so that I become independent when there's something. So this is the best time to do it. Interesting. So, you have you have four years of a tough tough course. Yes. And, and, you, I could balance it. and you think you could balance that. So I remember going to, I think WBS was about to start. Someone whispered to me that, oh, Mr. Wabamono is going to start a TV station. Mm-hmm. And I got up one early morning and I went to Spear Motors. And I sat there, waited for him to show up for, for work at 7 in the morning. <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't give me audience and say, talk to my secretary. And that was it. Because I wanted to see if I could get a job with WPS. That's I, what? Second or first year? first year. Interesting. Just starting first year. While I was a, a day student trying to transition to the evening group. Then I went to Capital Radio. They were starting Capital Radio. I asked to be a DJ. I, I went to Radio Sanyu. They told me to do a voice thing. I recorded my voice on a tape, took the tape there. All those things would stop at that point. I mean, 
I, I, I never got audiences after that. Did you have any DJ background? By the time no, you I enjoyed music. Okay. Uh, I would do the DJing at home, but we didn't have uh, this or anything. I would just we even had tapes, no CDs. So, uh, <laughs> move a tape, put it in a what is it? You put the pen in there, and then you turn around the tape to the number that you want, put it back in. It was crazy. So, so you were very intrigued and so it looked at that and you felt you yeah, could be a DJ. Yeah, do the DJ thing. And people were saying that my voice is good when you hear it on a recording. So that's what I was basing on. Okay. But maybe, thankfully to God, I never ended up in any of those <laughs> things. So I failed to get a job after trying so for four weeks. Okay. So I thought, okay, let me still go ahead and become an evening student. People okay. felt, felt it was a crazy decision. How can you be day student three years and now you want to shift to four years evening yes but i transitioned to an evening student and use the days to study i spent all the days in the library <clears throat> i remember in second year i have a friend who had been a close friend when we were in uh, high school roger Pibono, i remember his, um, the son to joseph Pibono, who was once commissioner electoral commission yes so he was studying in the uk and whenever he would get holidays, he would come to check on me. So one time he comes home at our, pres- at our residence in Makai and he was told, oh, I'm not there. And he was, and he was told I was studying. By, and then he said, but I thought, I think it was even during the holidays. So he told him, no, Tony's in the library. So he goes and finds me in the Makai University Library. And I was doing research in land law. And it felt it was crazy. We haven't yet gotten to study the subject. I'm in the library studying. And I'm re- I even wrote a huge article which I now want to transform into a book or something. And wow. I told him, yes, I use the days to read and read ahead. And then even when we go into the classroom for lectures, I, all, I know all these things that the lectures are talking about and I've done my advanced reading. So that's how my next three, four years of law school were. The days were spent in the library or at home reading. And in the evening, I gave up on looking for a job, but it helped me realize that whenever I would read, I would enjoy my classes more because I'd done that advanced reading. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> I, 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 that's quite interesting. You you wanted to be a DJ. That's that's a new one now. <laughs> but um, I, so I, I I like the fact that you you kept very intentional, which is which at the start and. But at that, did you have, what are those experiences? Did you involve yourself in leadership? Did you challenge yourself to say, I've looked at this, I think I can do it. You know how at university you want to say, maybe can I be a leader? As you became maybe a group leader in some of these discussions, did you feel the urge of saying, I can involve myself in politics, I can lead, I can... um... Leadership has always been a part of me. It fact follows me, I don't follow it. It follows me, It, it captures me even when I don't put myself forward, but not politics, which is different. Yes. <laughs> I'll talk about school or institutional leadership, even up to the deanship. Yes. Because I recall in my O-level in St. Mary's Jesuvi, from senior two to senior four, I was a class prefect. Wow. And I'd never asked for it. If I recall now, I mean, this is close to 30 or even more than 30 years back. Yes. They asked me to take it on and I did, and I did pretty well. Ah, so you I were not involved in campaigns? and No, no. Class prefects were kind of like nominated or chosen yes. at the time. Then come senior five, when I went back to SMAC, I became a house prefect. Okay. And even though like, oh, in all level you were leading 50, I think the class had 50 students. Now we want you to lead 200. At the time, each house had 200 students, which I did fairly well until I left SMAC at the end of senior five. So when we get into campus at Makere, um, 
the leadership that positioned itself my way, I wasn't interested in the class leadership, class representative thing, but it was more like Macquarie uh, Law Society leadership. Now, I didn't, I wasn't interested in being president. Okay. I thought I would give the vice presidentship a shot. But for some reason, even there, I didn't feel so motivated because I was up against a young lady called Christabel. I don't remember her surname now. She's at, she's she either moved to the US or Canada. Okay. And along the way during the campaigns, I just lost the interest. <laughs> yes, I just felt I could have pushed hard and probably won. Yes. But it's like when you're running a hundred meter race, and after you've covered eighty, and you're kind of at par with your competitor, you just the energy you just you just lose I the just energy. Lost the energy. Right. So she went on and won, oh. and. I presented myself after that as someone who would want to continue working with the executive. And I did. Oh, wow. uh, as a part of, person without portfolio. <laughs> yes. So we had um, the late Christopher Chiyombo who came through as president yes. of the Makerelo Society. Um, Christabella became vice president. Daniel Ruhezo was speaker. And I was someone who hung along. I would also help organize meetings and did all that stuff with them. Probably the, the leadership thing which I did now, I think maybe now that I think of it, yeah. where I lost interest, Makero Society is a, a bit political. Oh, okay. And I have no interest in politics. It was it was day. political even way then. Yes. To, to a great extent it was. Wow. Not as much as it is now. Okay. But I've never had any political boiling in my blood. All right. So probably that's why it happened that I would always want to stand at the side. Yes. Because the one thing that moves me, the kind of leadership that moves me is the one where I see smiles and social changes and society changes. And I saw that through an organization called Southern African Student Volunteers. Okay. The acronym is SASVO. Yes. So SASVO was started when we were in first year. We had the Human Rights Mode Court competitions, which were organized by University of Pretoria, who were hosted by Makele University School Faculty of Law. And when they came in, the different groups, South Africa, and even others from other parts of Africa, they brought SASBO to us. They told us that we have this organization in South Africa. It is the patron is Nelson, President Nelson Mandela. What we do as students, as university students, we go around looking for places where we can make a transformational change. We actually roll up our sleeves and we do building projects and things of that nature. So that's how SASBO was born at Macquarie University, the branch. Okay. And we did projects in Masindi, in Barara, Iganga, Gulu, where we would go around throughout the course of the year to different lawyers, different organizations all over Kampala raising money towards a project. And then we've raised enough money and we get further support from the South African High Commission here. We'd go and pitch camp and stay there for two weeks building a school, a primary school. Wow. From foundational level up to ring beam level. We get local engineers to work with us. We do the, the labor and the like mixing sand and cement and all that stuff. And we, put, we actually do the building. And then we'd leave it on ring beam. Then they later on get the roofing done. Wow. So we did so many projects from 96 um that time when it was started it was headed by a student who was uh, one year ahead of me mm -hmm. called Geraldine Akubu she's now been with she still is with law reform commission 
and a good friend of mine. So when Geraldine was leaving Makere in uh, 99 to join LDC and I was moving into my third year, I took over as leader. Oh. I mean, she just picked me. She was like, I see the trade senior as leader, take over Sazbo, which I did. And I, I ran it very well. We, When I was leader, we did a project in, uh, our first project was, was in Atiak, Gulu. Wow. And our second project was in Tororo. And that's when I moved to LDC after that. Okay. The Atiak project was someone came to us and said, we need help here. Connie has been gone two years. We haven't heard of Connie. We want to rebuild our schools. So we got to Gulu, December. In fact, this was always during the Christmas period. When we're there in December, Connie does return. <laughs> we're You're staying, not scared. We're okay. staying right next to a UPDF uh, battalion there. We're yes. told that Connie has been sighted uh, some kilometers away. You guys need to pack up and we're just about to wrap up the project anyway. Wow. So with with uh, escorts from UPDF, we, we came back, but I was leading and that was the first time I was leading the project. Everyone was scared, so I had to show them that everything's going to be well. I had to keep a smile on my face, keep cracking jokes. We get back to Kampala and the first person to be dropped off was me at my parents' place and my mom came out all screaming and that's when I realized it had been on the radio, they'd been talking about students in Guru Stranded and that's when oh. I realized the issues. Then the next project we did was in Tororo and the person that came to me was a year behind me and that approached me and said, we know Sasbo is doing a great job, please come to Tororo and, and uh, what's the place, I forget the area, okay. but that began a good friendship that I have with this person who is now Minister of Defense, wow. Jacob both of both. Wow. So he was the year behind me and he's the one who came and asked us to do a project in Toro, yes. which also went well. So those leadership traits were there and that's, that's, the, that's where I practice my leadership through the kind of work where you really change society and that's what I love doing up to now. Interesting, interesting, Doctor. So, Doctor, maybe before we now go to the closure of your four years and you're a graduate here of law school and you're a lawyer, um, what are some of those um, lecturers or people that you think had, you know, when we're going through law school, there's somebody you look up to, and how did you, uh, what, which faces do you recall, like lecturers, both lecturers? I know you had your dad being in the picture, but who are some of those profound people? that you met along the way that um, gave you that zeal to keep on going through law school? Two particular ladies well, come out. I mean, without a doubt. Okay. Uh, Dr. Damali Najita Musoke. Okay. Very wonderful person that I have a huge respect for. I call her auntie. <laughs> she calls me my son. I wow. mean, she said teaching, she taught us a law of evidence and I think she also taught us um, one of the stages of family law, if I recall, because mm. they used to split, split up and teach different topics under family law. Yes. But we kind of struck it off with Dr. Najita. I enjoyed her classes when she was teaching evidence. She would ask me to lead on some of the class discussions. I, I, I went on to, to do my dissertation under her supervision. And of the five people she supervised, I remember I performed quite well. And the others came out complaining, how could she give, give me a 50 or a 60? And I kept quiet. I didn't want to tell them I got an 80-something. <laughs> did, did your friendship with her have a bearing on that score? I, I don't know. I, um, I, wouldn't, I, I, shouldn't, I wouldn't think so. I, uh, I think I really yeah. wrote my paper well. And then I, you were I, very outstanding. I wrote on the dissolution of marriage. Um, and 
yeah, I enjoyed the topic that I wrote on, and yeah. she she guided me along the way. When you have yeah. a passion for something and you give it your all, you wouldn't doubt the outcome. And yes, students need to understand that uh, all my life, as we even continue, what I appreciate about this interview, it has been merit best. Yes, I, I I decided not to walk in my dad's shadows, and people who know me well right from that history know that everything has been merit best. Even yes. those who would come out and try and doubt it and feel and trying to position my dad, they would everyone would shout them out and say, "No, this guy really worked for this." Yes. So yeah, through Doctor Musoke, Najita Musoke, she helped me through law school. I enjoyed my classes under her, and she, in a way, also impacted on me deciding to become an, an academician along the way. Yes. The other person is uh, Justice Leah uh, Tibatewa, right from first year when she taught us criminal procedure. She's also that kind of person who wouldn't treat students as students. That's one of the things I've taken. She would treat them as friends, give them respect. She's the person who opened up the first opportunity for me to become an acad- academician. Yes. I remember I was just leaving the parking lot of game um, 2001. I was working in a Shinobi Musokian company. And uh, funny enough, it's Dr. Damali Najita, who I found that she wasn't a doctor then. And she was like, hey, how are you? We, we're really looking for lecturers. Uh, doctor, then Dr. Lydia Antivatim has been looking for your number. I'll give it to her. Dr. Lillian Tivatima, Justice Tivatima, was acting dean at UCU at the time. This oh. was 2002. Yes, okay. 2002. So I reached out to her and she's like, I want you to come as a teaching assistant at UCU. So I, I was excited. I applied January 2003 because they had two intakes. They had the September intake and the January intake. So January 2003, I joined UCU as a part-time lecturer and been there to this day. Wow. <laughs> but... It's the those two ladies that made this happen for me, and that's why I really respect them. Wow, well, I thought you'd make mention of your dad, but <laughs> I think I mean, that... you say after my dad, oh, of course. Yes, it's after my. The interesting thing with my dad is <clears throat> he had a shyness to him, even really? before his own family. Really, he would never tell you anything straight. He, of course, on the two or three occasions, he told me straight how proud he was, and he, I'd always get surprised that he has said it because. You yes. never really said you'd say it, you'd know he's proud, but you'd never really say it. Yeah. Um, when we had finished our first year, we're now our results are out and we are waiting to go into our second year. He got a visit from a friend of his who is now a retired professor, John Jean Barrier, who he had been teaching labor law and jurisprudence. So he would always come home and they would sit and chat. So Professor Barrier comes home and he's asking my dad, Oh, how did you enjoy marking these students and all that? My dad says, oh, in my introduction to law class, I was very impressed with some students. This one who, can you imagine, he talked about the docu report of whatever year, I don't even remember, which he hadn't really taught. But this is something I talked about in the exam. I had picked from one of his files, one of his books in the library, and I had mentioned it in my paper, answering his exam. So when uh, Professor Barrier left, I was like, Dad, I'm the one who wrote about the docu report in the exam. Uh And he was like, of course I know. You wanted me to say my son wrote about this in the exam. <laughs> <laughs> so he was 
<laughs> was lifting me up and talking about it before his colleague, but yeah. he didn't mention the name. It's and quite, he was smart enough that he did that. It's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. It's quite it's interesting. So, it's kind it's of person he was. In, interesting. I can see you really have very profound memories, both at law school and both as a lecturer and also, I think, being your father. That's that's very good. So let's talk about here you are, fourth year is done, the four years, and you are at, uh, you know, the Law Development Center. Did you, you know, you previously wanted to get a job. Did you say now the four years are done here, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, maybe let me go and be my father's uh, secretary in his, you know, no. office? No. Or Interesting things happened around that time. Okay. I joined LDC, I joined LDC at a time when... Um, my dad, he had been working on contract basis. You know, at Macquarie, when you get to, I think, the age of 60, that's when one has to retire from teaching. Then they give you contracts yes. for a number of years mm. until the contractual years also run out and then you totally have to leave. Mm. So he was now teaching under contract and was on to his last year. Mm. So in the year 2000, I, fin- I leave Macquarie, I go to LDC, and his last contract year is also spent. Okay. And around that time, from 98 to 2000, as he was transitioning out of teaching and he was a part-time law reform commissioner, he, his, in Uganda, you'd call Koja, or his uncle, yes. was a renowned lawyer called Henry Kayondo, who ran a law firm called Kayondo and Company Advocates. Okay. He used to be one of the best criminal lawyers. So when Henry Kayondo passed on, oh, so sorry. he... He was diagnosed with a sign illness, and when he knew he was about to die, he called my dad to join him so that there would be a tra- smooth transition and clientele and all that stuff. So my dad took over running the law firm as he was finishing up his final years at Macquarie. So, so then he takes on the farm entirely when the lead kind is gone, yes. and I worked there a little bit. So I was always looking at myself as someone who had been practicing. Practice. In fact, I didn't think so much about going into academia at that time. It was like, okay, after LDC, I'll be in full-time practice. But my dad, having told for 40 years, around the time he had been in academia for 40 years, oh. he he really struggled with legal practice. I mean, you can't be an academician and so good at it and then also excel in legal practice just like that. Yes. You have to balance it. That's part of the reason why. I've also tried to ensure that I stay one foot in practice to this day. So I could see he was struggling. He was more of the policy kind of person or academic kind of person. And so he was approached by a friend of his, Alan Shanubi, to merge the two firms. And he joined Shanubi and Company Advocates as a consultant as some clients decided to go elsewhere, but some of the big clients went with Shanubi Musoke, such as Century Bottling and the like. So when I finished LDC, to be honest, I don't recall whether that influenced my joining Shanubi Musoke or whether I just looked at it as a big farm. I would think, partly, I had friends there who also encouraged me to join. I had a friend friend called Sheila Bracker, who was working at Shinobi Stock and Company. I used to visit her, so she asked me, why don't you apply here for clerkship and then, of course, for the internship, <coughs> excuse me, Yes. and then later on joining. And incidentally, it was just about the same time my dad was also joining that law firm. Yes. As a consultant. So I joined Shinobi Musoke. They did my internship there. And after LDC, I continued working with them uh, and as my dad was also there. So around that same time, my dad becomes full-time commissioner 
chairperson no reform commission okay in a way i would follow him along there i followed him in academia i followed him or we joined together at the same law firm okay and then in 2003 i don't know if i should jump to the time i applied to law for maybe that comes afterwards yeah 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 but especially because now i just want to know um I, I, I wanted to hear your story about now the Law Development Center. Yeah. How okay. was your experience LDC, there? LDC was, I mean, before you go to LDC, everyone talks about it being a tough place. It was a tough place for us as well. Okay. We were a total of 150 students there. We were the only students who went as our lot at Mercury. The year before, you had had the evening group going with the day group. Yes. But ours, because we're the, I think we we're the first law students at Mercury who were alone in evening. We're the only ones who joined LDC without any other groups joining us. Maybe apart from people who had come from Dar es Salaam and the rest, yes. mm. who were quite few. So we're a total of 150 students. The first shocker was that it was in our year that LDC stopped accommodating students, which was annoying because we only found out about this on a Friday when we were starting school on Monday. Wow. So you can imagine we went there in the morning. I went with my friend Daniel Rueza, who were going to book a room that would stay in together only to see something on the notice board that no accommodation find your level <laughs> Sad. so yeah we found our own level and one of the shockers was getting there and feeling that the kind of way we'd been doing our discussions at Macari would follow into LDC that you'd have your discussion groups discuss things and you're ready to submit the next day no that wasn't the case we get there in our first week they give us the problem question then we retreat to my friend Eric Katanga was renting within Makere. Incidentally, the same residence where Daniel was staying. Yeah. And we started discussing the problem question at about 8 in the evening. We finished at around 5 a.m. the next day. <laughs> and we were all broken out. And we're like, God, is this how it's going to be every day? <laughs> we hardly slept. So we go back to the center because it was the very next day we had to discuss what we had been you know, present what we've been discussing. Yes. And we're shocked to find that our colleagues were like, oh, last night I was in Angenoa. I was like, you went dancing and we were really, really, we we had such people in class wow. who didn't take things seriously. Yes. But they still finished and passed with us. <laughs> so yeah. that was and a shocker in many You ways. guys are being overzealous. Yes, and, and oh. the others were taking life easily. The other thing that shocked me was I remember preparing a certain... Um, write up on land law, yes, discuss this problem very well. And my friend had been sick for a long time. He comes and I give him my my discussion of the problem question. This was Eric, and he goes off to photocopy it just before the lecturer came in so that we'd make our presentations. And those photocopying ladies had this thing about making an extra copy without you realizing it. So she ran many other copies which she sold because they were to sell those copies. Yes. So we get in the class like 20, 30 minutes later and the lecturer asks her, okay, who can lead us in this uh, thing? And then as I'm ready to put up my hand and present, someone else puts up a hand and I realize that half the class have my script. And it was like when people gather and you're reciting for a play, everyone was reading from the same script. It really angered me not that i didn't want to share my material but yeah. the way it easily spread and people hadn't read and everyone is just contributing from the same and i i did blame eric i couldn't blame him i just knew the photocopying lady has made her money yeah. out of my work again so we had such instances at ldc all the time 
um, interestingly at LDC, like I said, it was the year 2000 that I gave my life to Christ. And when I did, okay. I remember reading a scripture that everyone who surrenders to God, to Christ, has, has to carry a cross. Mm. That someone, there's some kind of thing where the devil wants to pull you back or makes you suffer in a way, but you have to stand your ground because you're, you are walking a new direction. And I knew that the two major challenges, the two major crosses I would have to carry were yes. my academics and my family because I was coming from a very staunch Catholic family and yes. Catholic faith telling them about Pentecostal and things, things happen anyway. Yes. So yeah, the first thing that hit me is Professor Konyango coming to talk to us because he was dean at the time and then he tells us, oh guys, I'm very sorry we miscalculated your GPAs and stuff like that. Many of you are affected, so... If you've gotten your transcripts, you probably have the wrong grade. Wow. <laughs> I was in the process of applying for my transcript then, and I had gotten second class upper. But when he said that they had miscalculated, I realized I was two points short, so I was actually supposed to be getting second class lower. So I had I had just gotten my transcript, yes, with a second class upper. I had applied to quite a number of universities, Harvard, Oxford, all those. Okay. And then the conviction hit me, I have to return my transcript and claim for my actual one. Because it's not about me working hard, it's really about God, it's never really about us. Everything yeah. we have comes from Him. Yes. So I started my six-month-long journey of changing my transcript from a top grade to a lower grade. And wow. everyone thought I was crazy. I used to walk up that hill, it was very sunny and hot, I get up to the Senate building sweating, this is after, well, after LDC. No, I mean, was doing LDC. I mean, I'm saying you're doing that well at LDC. Yes. Interesting. Because we would have classes or when I know maybe a lecture is not going to come or we've gotten an hour free, I run up to Makere. Wow. Interesting. And people at Makere would start blasting me. It wasn't like, oh, you want to change it? Okay, here. It was a process. They would yes. say, oh, we have to go through this office, so much bureaucracy. Yes. But they would always ridicule me and say, you must be crazy to to think you've gotten a very good transcript and now you want to change it to a lower one. Yes. I mean, second class lower is not that bad, but yes. it's not as good as second, second class upper. upper. Yes. And I kept insisting, no, that's what I want to do. Even my born again friends who had led me to Christ, Daniel and Eric were saying, you are crazy to do that. Daniel still says it's one of the craziest things that I ever did. Wow. And my mom, that's, I remember, that's very bold. my mom cried and said that all these blockly things you've gone into are really turning you, you're not thinking straight. But funny enough, my dad was like, well, if that's what he wants to do, let the boy do what he wants to do. He has made a decision. Interesting. So I thought my dad would be mad, but he didn't necessarily support me, but he, he okayed the whole thing. Yes. My mom was angry. My sister, who lived in the U.S., had already cooked up a university for me in Michigan which was ready to admit me on my second class upper. But the day I got my new transcript yes. of second class law, I was so excited. Wow. And that was one of the first times I've had a few instances where really the way I'm hearing you now, we have had the voice of God. I had God telling me I'm taking you to Warwick. Warwick University. I didn't know what Warwick was. I didn't know where it was. I had not yet even applied to Warwick. But I had this voice telling me, I'm taking you to Warwick University when I got my second class lower. Wow. And yes, that was, um, it was a journey ending up in Warwick. I was first admitted to the University of Essex in 2002. 
um, I have a family friend called uh, Professor Angasha Mugasha, who yes. was once chairman of the Reform Commission. Yeah. Met with my dad and was like, God, oh, encourage your son to apply to Essex. He was teaching there. And he helped along the way and I got my admission. Uh, but just after that, then the Warwick admission also came in and I ended up going to Warwick. But it was really about God. Now, the interesting thing was that Warwick University was only taking second class upper. Their, their brochure was strictly nothing below second class upper, but somehow I still ended up going. <laughs> interesting yeah. doctor yeah. so doctor so i can see you i think you really had a good time did you have a good time at say at at at, at, LDC. Uh, at LDC? Did no. you, was it a smooth ride no it wasn't a smooth ride i i did two supplementaries and one of them even twice i did the paper twice again so sorry and again like i say it was part of that carrying your cross thing and i, I equated it to giving my life to christ and the crosses that i have to carry mm. so i redid uh, civil procedure, I redid land law. Okay. Funny enough, these were the two papers that I had done best at Macquarie, to the wow. point that I'd been the best in the class at Macquarie in both papers. Wow. So it gets okay. to LDC and I have substance civil and land. And funny enough, someone who was, uh, this is something that I haven't talked about. This is the first time I'm saying it in the open because it's going on record. Oh, okay. Someone working within the system came and said that. Uh, a colleague or a, a classmate had bought my exams and they had swapped mine with hers so that I didn't really even need to do the subs. I needed to follow up on the thing. I had no proof of this. Uh, I talked to a, a judge who was a family member and she said we could easily follow this up but we need proof. And all that I had was a staff member who had whispered to me about it. So sorry. But the staff member didn't want to come forth. So I ended up going and doing the subs. I did land and civil again. I passed land, but I still I failed civil a second time. So I went back a second time and did it. Oh good. But in the process, when I was doing reading for it the second time, I felt God telling me that you you studying this hard and again you still fail to realize that it's all about me. That's when I felt really it's really about God. So I pushed my files aside. I said, I'm not going to read anymore for this sub. Let me just go and see what they will test me on. At that time, I was working at Shinobi Musoki and Company. It was in 2002. And the question they asked, so I think it was during the orals, were related to some of the things I'd been doing in the law firm. <laughs> so I ended up passing it the second time. I realized, yes, at the end of the day, yes, we need to read hard and study hard. But it's really about God and not oh, us. Oh. You yes. use that's that's powerful. So, doctor, I that's you're out. And uh, so, did you have a direct placement? Say you left Law Development Center, yes, and, and I just transitioned straight, continued working at Shinobi Misoke. Oh, you had yeah. you know been so attached I, I there. My part, uh, flagship internship there, okay. As soon as we finished LDC, the next week I just continued working there. That was 2001, continued 2002 until uh, July of 2003. I had a brief stint at uh, a farm called Chituma Magalan Company. Mm. They called me to join them barely a month before I went for my master's yes. at Warwick. So 2003, I left Shinobi Musokian Company, worked one month with Chituma Magalan Company, and then went to the UK for my master's. Oh, okay. So now let's talk about your master's. How was 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 your application because somebody listening out there might wonder they've left 
you know undergrad ldc and they might want to apply and go for you know their studies abroad was was the transition that easy did you get like you were saying because i always look back and wonder what are the things that benefited out of working at shinobi and the main benefit was it's a it's a big commercial law firm okay so it had a lot of exposure to me and training in commercial transactions which i easily blended into when i went for my masters yes like i said i applied a number of universities okay. both before changing my transcript and even after changing it oh okay um but with a lot of support from my dad i don't even remember how i ended up applying to work after hearing god's voice saying i'm taking you to work yes I just finally applied and the admission came through yes but when i went there i studied international economic law okay and there were quite a number of tough subjects like business financing corporate financing things like that um, banking in fact i first thought i would end up in banking because yes. i enjoyed the subject but these are things which uh, i was now seeing on a theoretical side mm-hmm. after three years two and a half years at shinobi msoke which i'd been handling on a transactional yes. basis yeah uh, understanding things like escrow accounts many of my classmates didn't understand those things but i've been exposed to them in the law firm yes and that's what i took on so it was a bit i wouldn't say so much of smooth sailing at at, uh, at my masters okay. but it helped that i'd had this exposure um when i was into my third term of my master's course that's when you get to decide which subjects to do in your final term as well as dissertation i was kind of directing myself towards banking and money laundering and write a paper in that and probably come back and practice um a banking law yes my dad like i said was working at the law reform commissioner's chair and he told me that no the next big thing is intellectual property interesting you need to start thinking about intellectual property so i said okay so i did my uh, dissertation in intellectual property my thesis okay. and also did subjects in that i said picking up interest i mean like i'd say that uh, i think we're having a side conversation where said, the first exposure i'd had into ip was at ldc yes and because this as a jurisprudence hadn't grown nationwide and even globally people mm. didn't really understand it very well but when i did at master's level at, in 2004 then as i was wrapping up the master's it yeah. picked up a huge interest did my dissertation in that um finished came back home um worked a few more months at Chitumamagala and uh resumed teaching at UCU. Okay. Now when I did in 2005 when I resumed at UCU I first taught a bunch of all different subjects here yeah, jurisprudence business associations and all that human rights even. Yes. And and then finally started teaching intellectual property I think in 2007 2006-2007 is when I started teaching intellectual property. I first taught land law and I enjoyed it pretty well and I was practicing land law. I was handling some cases in Mitiana and Movende. I had this crazy thing of waking up at 5 in the morning, <clears throat> handling a matter in Movende, magistrate's court at 9 in the morning, a land law matter of course. Yes. Then finish in Movende, which is one hour away from Mitiana, drive to Mitiana, I have another case there at 11, finish it at 11.30, 11.40, quickly drive and um, at 2pm I'm in Mukono teaching wow. all land law related matters. So 
it was fascinating because the cases I'd handled, which had landlord principals, I'd bring them to the classroom and I'd share with the class and I enjoyed it that way. But gradually I started losing interest because you teach about landlord principles, you teach about rights to land and who can be evicted and who can't be evicted. And yet what people are seeing on a daily basis and in the newspapers, is totally different. So I say feeling that pull away from the principles I appreciated and what was really out there in practice. And at the same time, the interest in intellectual property was picking up. Wow. So that's how the transition came from teaching about tran- uh, tangible property to intangible. Tangible property. <laughs> yes. That, uh, my colleague, Paula Simwe, who I had met in 2002, he yes. had just returned from doing his master's at uh, Warwick University. Yes. And I was attending uh, fellowships with Uganda Christian Lawyers Fraternity, so we met through then and we became closer as friends when he heard that I was now going to work where he had just come from. So 2004, 2005, when I'm back and settled in, he called me and hey, why don't you join me at CP Law Associates? He had started the law firm slowly and he was focusing on just intellectual property. Yes. So I'll balance the times I'm in Kampala, I sit in his farm, do some stuff. Other times I'm teaching. I was like part-time All right. in the farm. And that's yeah. how my relationship with his farm started. Wow. And I picked up the interest in intellectual property along the way. So in 2009, I remember I was in that law farm. 2010, actually, close mm-hmm. to the presidential elections. Yes. When I received a call from gentleman i don't remember who and she was complaining that oh we've been recommended to your farm can you imagine the president has picked our folklore Penconi, and he wants to copyright it what can we do to stop him and i felt actually there's nothing they can do because if he's been re- reciting these poems and he's transformed them into uh, a rap song that's okay the law doesn't have anything that stops that but this is an interesting dimension that why shouldn't people stop others from profiting out of their folklore? Yes. So at that time, I'd written my applications to a number of universities for PhD opportunities. Okay. Nothing was really coming through. Of course, whenever they would come through, they would want you to pay and the money was too much for it. So you okay. just lose interest. But I got the breakthrough when I applied to University of Illinois and they got back to me okay. in um, December 2010 saying, yes, we've offered you... Uh, um, admission and we're giving you full scholarship full tuition scholarship wow, wow. so, so i get have, there you didn't have to struggle with yes. school fees yes uh, yeah. i get there and the first thing i say i want to of course i sent in my proposal i wanted to write on copyright and e-commerce but when i get there and they ask me that everyone has written about copyright and e-commerce can't you pick up something new and exciting that's when i remember that phone call from the person complaining about the folklore and you want another rap. And I said, okay, why don't I write about the intersection between intellectual property and traditional cultural expressions? That can someone just get traditional knowledge? Yes. Um, the mixing of herbs and you come up with a drug and then you want to get a patent for it. Yes. Or someone who gets a poem or a song that his grandfathers and the like have been reciting and then you end up going to the studio and you want to get a copyright for it yes. and i realized there are many cases of these things happening but there's no clear legal position but the outcry is increasing and when i shared this with my uh, doctor committee they got so excited about it they say yes and 
that that began my journey of an interest in traditional knowledge culture expressions and how they work with ip wow wow that's interesting doctor so doctor i i can see that that's you've briefly highlighted about your doctorate journey and why you actually decided that it had to be intellectual property maybe the question we would have is did you really think that that had a place here even as you tried um uh adventuring in the in the in the area did you did you did it come to your mind that back at home this is something that you would have a place definitely because um for a number of reasons one if like i said i got opportunities to stay in the us i okay. had my family with me okay. my wife and kids who joined me later my wife was also given an admission in the same university to do her masters so the obvious thing would have been get a job stay there to return to uganda but i realized that the many people that stay out there especially in my field i started doing some research how many ugandan academicians have stayed in the uk and there were hardly any oh. like you could only pick up one or two yes. i even met with them talked to them and what about those who just end up in practice and even there hardly any stay within the legal profession they have to do something else so you're part of a huge crowd and you're struggling to stay afloat mm-hmm. the first few years for those who have succeeded the first few years can be hugely cumbersome and very rough okay and i do want to put my family through that okay one i had a three year uh, scholarship my wife was also admitted on scholarship and i realized that once i'm done with the three years i'll have to struggle on my own Okay. But besides all that, my heart has always been at home. Oh. Good weather, good food. <laughs> you can just stroll to the next place and you know someone there. Whereas there, it's everyone doesn't know each other. Everyone is in a rush. Of course, the money is there, but it all gets spent because of a huge cost of living. Mm. So, and then you look at the topic that I'm researching about and how so relevant it is to the African setting where we're all about culture and things like that. Yes. Out there, they don't understand them. They may use our culture. They, of course, they use our culture to feed into their intellectual property. Yes. But you would struggle to explain it from there if you're based there. And I realized that the best way I can make a mark and even be successful is come back and then be relevant, both at home and back there. And with the grace of God, that's how it has turned out. Wow. That I did my doctorate in a record of three years. Um, that's well, quite a short time yes i yes. must say Many of them were saying people to finish three years is three one of the reasons was i had a three-year scholarship i mean if i stay longer i have to look for the money myself but i also wanted to finish and get done and finally start living a, a straight a, a more focused life in that direction okay but then when i came back they offered me uh, an adjunct professor position at the same university of Illinois. Say, so why don't you come back and teach that course? Because no one has ever taught about intellectual property and traditional knowledge. So that's how I became part of the faculty there wow. as a visiting professor. Wow. And then WIPO got interested, the World Intellectual Property Organization. They said, we have very few experts in this field. Why don't you become one of our consultants? Now I've helped uh, with the drafting of laws in that direction in Ghana. I have helped with Uganda. We're in the process of drafting a law on traditional knowledge in Uganda. And I'm in the process of helping with Malawi. Those are things you can only do once you go back home. If you stay out there, by now I'd probably be doing a part-time job cleaning somewhere as I'm you know, struggling <laughs> to keep the family afloat and the like. Yes, yeah. I'll probably end up in a university there, but you struggle, struggle, struggle. Oh. Not saying that I'm a lazy person who doesn't want to struggle. I've worked hard. <laughs> yes. But... There are many ways you can enjoy your life better. 
I've met with many of my colleagues from Uganda who are successful lawyers in the US. I mean, not many, just a few, but respectfully, out of respect for them, they don't have much of a social life. All right. Every single day, every weekend is you have to keep at it. Ah, when do you relax? That's interesting. Doctor, we'll get to that. We we'll, yeah. would we'll want to know what, what gets you off these so many books. But maybe as a, as a wrap-up on, on the three uh, things that your life has rotated around uh, or in your journey, um, the teaching. How For somebody who has an interest out there, what would you tell them? somebody wants to join the academia and because I'll ask you about that then I'll ask you about your dean mm. but somebody wants to join this academia journey and 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 be outstanding as you've been what would be that thing you tell them or what has kept you going it's uh, the passion it's right. really about the passion that's in this, in summing it up it's just that one word passion you have to be passionate about it when I was dean even before I was dean I would interact with colleagues that you see you you would see are taking this on as just a job for the money they, yes of course we all need the money and it's the money that helps us to survive but if the money comes as the number one reason yes. above passion then you wouldn't drive yourself you didn't drive yourself to to see that your students excel you didn't drive yourself to do that extra research that they need or you wouldn't share your knowledge easily with the students we have lecturers who demean students, who speak down to students. They lack the passion for what they're doing. We have those who come in and they're using other people's notes it's because they don't have the passion to go out and read their own notes. The passion drives you to do all those things, to, to see that the other student will excel and come out as a colleague. It's about passion. As opposed to the lecturer who says, if this person succeeds and he becomes my competitor in the field, I'll be doomed for, then let me fail the student, then they lack the passion. So at the end of the day, it's the passion that has guided me into um, doing as I'm doing in academia. Um, I'm narrowing down my years in academia. I don't want to be in academia for the rest of my life. I actually thought, what do you see yourself? But now that you're saying you're narrowing it, why? why? I, I, I've learned so much from my dad. Okay. To him, it was all about academia from beginning to end. Although his final years, I mean, spent over eight years as law reform commission chairperson but even then he was dean at Nkumba and he was also teaching part-time at Kampala International University so his was a class apart but in this modern day and age um, I'm looking at myself as someone who does something then sees that yes I've put my footprint here it's now time to move on okay. like I did my years I was at UCU from 2003 part-time became full-time 2006 and it's in much of this year that i retired as full-time at uc but i've remained as a part-timer i've joined mccary as a full-timer and even that i'm looking at let it be for some years with god's grace if it can take me through to professorship but if not at least i've given it a target period of time and then move on to something else i want to put a deep footprint in um legal practice as well. It may not necessarily be um, court-going practice. In any case, much as I love court-going practice, it's been eroded by the very many shady lawyers around us that at the end of the day, you who wants to do straight legal practice, you're frustrated if you're up against a lawyer who is either paying the judge or is paying the clerk or he messes up the case in that way. That has messed up things a little bit. But 
I want to put a footprint in legal transactional work and legal practice through law firm and then also say now I want to move on to something else. Everything to me has set times where I want to put a footprint and move on. I think that explains why you had to join Biencha, but we'll come to that. So I, the other question uh, Dr. had for you is one would imagine or somebody out there would want to they have looked at you, you've inspired them in one way or the other, and they, they're wondering how does one become a dean of, of law school? Uh, what do you think it, it takes and, and what would you tell somebody who has that aim in both, I know it has an academia sort of background, but in shaping themselves, working towards that goal, in being at, at the helm of an institution that helps in churning out future lawyers? You have to get something that you can be, you can kick at. I mean, the journey starts, uh, I appreciate the way you've taken us through this journey from law school, finished LDC, supported to get a master's. All right. um, you can become dean before you get your doctorate, but it's probably more preferable after you get your doctorate because now the competition requires that all oh, someone to be dean should have the DR before the name. Yes. In the past, it was okay not to because there were fewer law schools, but now competition demands it. But um, follow that trajectory that you'd say, I want to go the academic route, so it has to be that straight trajectory. And it also requires writing papers. Um, we have so many people who are in academia, but they're not writing papers, so you wonder why. Um, engaging in podcasts like this one, um, doing things like what Joe Basoga does, you see that's the passion. Whenever you see someone who wants to fill others with knowledge, who wants to educate other people, train other people into understanding values and taking on those values. Those are people who are following a direct road towards leadership in the deanship yes. direction. It's not just about writing papers, which is also crucial, publishing and writing papers, but inform others in any way possible that you can and be consistent at it as the side the side initiatives that you need on top of the LLB, LLM, and the doctorate. Because these things help you to appreciate people and how you want other people to also generate a value system. And um, other than that, it also helps to understand people because being a dean is all about managing people. At the end of the day, that's the best way I'll summarize it. Because you're managing two sets of people. You're managing students, and you're managing workmates. You're going to manage that person who will not want to submit his papers because he would rather focus on his deals. How are you going to deal, manage that one? As opposed to the student who comes in and he's crying that he hasn't paid his fees yet or things of that nature. How do you manage that one? How do you manage those situations? Yeah. So it's about managing people. And if you're good at managing people, as well as consistent at building up on your academic papers then you will head towards the deanship very well you manage the deanship very well interesting i i hope that maybe one day i can be dean yes, <laughs> definitely yes. so um maybe now the, the theme um what would you say about the years you found in the practice of intellectual property have you what are some of those things you look back and even now as you're doing it as a partner at at, at bench and heading a docket that deals with intellectual property law practice. What's what would you make of it in our Uganda as a context as a country? It's exciting. Okay. It's very exciting because it's 
building up. Okay. Um, you would think that the person who says I would prefer less people in this field and less people knowing it, that would be a selfish perspective. Okay. But if you have more people, more fellow lawyers who are knowledgeable about IP, that means they will advise the clients better and you'd either not end up in the courtroom or if you do and you're both straight people with integrity, you would enjoy the case that you would handle very well and the judge would also enjoy it. In the beginning, one of the first cases I handled, I've been in litigation very limited times in IP, was the, the famous case of VPRS versus um, MTN. But the challenges along the way, I do respect Justice Obola's judgment at the end of the day, but some of the challenges along the way were, were up against uh, a legal system and even defendants themselves who did not appreciate IP. So it's like the Tower of Babel where you're all hitting at each other because you're speaking different languages. Yes. You won't build the Tower of Babel because you're speaking different languages and that's how God prevented the Tower going higher. Low, uh, intellectual property has not been going higher because we're all speaking different languages. Okay. But now it has grown. Law schools are teaching it. More lawyers are appreciative of it. Judges are beginning to understand it because it's been hard while judges also were not understanding it. Okay. But even policy makers, ministries and the lawyers are all beginning to understand it. Therefore, the future is really bright and it, it, that other tower will develop higher. Okay, so that's what makes it very exciting. Have you found any challenges even when you came back uh, to, you know, teach it as a subject? Because I know at, at fourth year for say like fourth year for law schools uh, that are teaching it. Do you find any challenges say? Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely. We both in, in teaching it and also in practice. At, at One of the first things I did when I just become dean with some friends, we organized a kind of like a colloquium of bringing together intellectual property lecturers. It was even hosted at UCU. Yeah. Well, we wanted to be in harmony with the way we teach it. Because if we do, then we'll all channel students who think alike. Unfortunately, many of the lectures we invited did not embrace what we wanted. So that's one challenge, which still remains to this day, that you may have UCU and I dare say to an extent, Makere, teaching it the way it needs to be taught and teaching what needs to be taught, but I'm not so sure about how other universities are teaching it. So you have half-baked people from some universities and others are really good. They all meet up at LDC and it's a whole mess out there because they're going to churn out lawyers who still don't understand the IP that the way they should be understanding it. Only a few of them would. So we need to be able to have that harmony within the law school so that everyone understands the principles the way they need to be understood and they come out that way. Practice, same thing. I do a lot of work with URSP. One would think I'm even someone who works there. And I enjoy it that I'm always with the likes of the Registrar General, the Director IP. These are close friends. We're always sitting down and discussing things. But I see their frustration when I do consultancies with them because the reports that I issue out through my consultancies, they would have to table to their line ministry, Ministry of Justice, and then they would have the principle of collective responsibility for all the cabinet ministers to, in, to embrace this. Then it goes to parliament and then it becomes a big thing. But they would fight over these things in cabinet where another ministry wants to hold this thing and they are thinking differently. So those infightings are not what we need here. Okay. IP is a big thing. IP is what is taking the US now. I've always told in my classes that the top three exports out of the U.S. are all IP. And that's what brings in billions. The music industry, the movie industry, and ICT. That is intellectual property. Uganda, if we were to embrace our creative industry the way we should and 
understand the IP around it and protect it as a as a one collective responsibility. It would shoot us shoot up our economy much further than the way it is now. But there is a lot of infighting, and they're fighting over crumbs. Yet they would all sit together and enjoy the big meal at the table. That's and I don't know when that will ever change. <laughs> I, maybe as somebody at the helm of, of policy, have you tried to influence that? I, I know you you could write a paper, you could have seen your writings about this gentleman, uh, Dr. Ogwal, Professor Ogwal, who came up with COVID-19. That's the most that we can do. Okay. I mean, like I said, I'm not a politician. I don't, Yes. God help me never to put me there. I don't <laughs> ever want to be a politician. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, but as an outsider, I can only shout from the streets. Okay. And if they take the message, then they will embrace it. So okay. that's the best shouting on the street is write the articles. Mm-hmm. In the newspapers, let them see the light through there. Um, do everything so that if they embrace it, they would walk the proper route they should take. All right. So, so, so lastly, for somebody who has an interest in, in intellectual property, maybe a student, maybe a practicing lawyer out there, and they have found interest, what would be that one thing you tell them that in an area which is appreciating more of intellectual property, what is that one thing you would tell them that would keep them? One thing is... Um, don't join the crowd. Okay. Get something unique that would help you stand out. I appreciate when my doctoral professors, doctor supervision professors, who are good friends of mine now, were telling me, where do you want to do your doctoral thesis in copyright and e-commerce? Everyone has written on that. Pick something new and fresh. And that's when I went for culture expressions and IP, which was new and fresh. It's now also becoming broad. But there's always something new in IP, just as there's always something new in any, any other area of the law. One of the things I love about intellectual property, the intellectual property you discuss in 2020 is different from the one you discuss in 2021. It's always evolving. We as lecturers or researchers, we're always digging more to understand more so as to be able to discuss more with others. So anyone who wants to go into this field, there's so much out there that they can do. It's at some point, five, ten years ago it was traditional knowledge. It still is to an extent, but now we're looking at new areas which are complex and need answers. So anyone who wants to go into IP can look into those. We're now looking into artificial intelligence. It's a new thing. How can it be protected as IP? Robots are coming up with patents. Would you give a patent to a robot? Those are more questions that need answers. We're talking about a graphical user interface. The little things you see on your smartphones, on your tablets, those are graphical user interfaces. And the people that create them are saying, we want this as its own form of IP, as opposed to looking at it as copyright or trademarks. So those are questions that need answers. So there are always unique, nitty gritty areas of IP that evolve every year that people can look into and say, let me do research in this and be the expert in this one area that I'll be called upon in this area. My my elder brother, I call him my elder brother and good friend, Paula Simwe, the managing partner at CP Law Associates, dug his teeth deep into trademarks. And all he does is trademarks. And he's so good at trademarks that he's the number one go-to person in trademarks. So you pick your field. Don't say, let me also go into trademarks. We have a crazy copycat syndrome here, which doesn't help us. But the only way you can stand out in the crowd is you pick your area. Uh, Edgar, uh, Edwin Tabaro is building up expertise in uh, GIs, geographical indications. I fall in a number of places, but I would say I'm more of a patent guy and copyright guy. I mean, those are two areas. I'm actually, I, I don't call myself a trademark lawyer. I've done very little on trademarks. I know Paul is a trademark guy. 
I'm more into copyright patents and traditional knowledge. But then you have Edwin Tabaro, uh, GIs. You have Pauline Namositwa, who is also an IP person. She's TK, traditional knowledge. Uh, Grace Nakabuko is also trademarks. Pick, I mean, there's so many areas. There's there's a lot of space. There's a lot of room in the bus for all of us. And we shouldn't be frustrating others from joining in because there's so much room. So go IP, yes. Learn all the basic areas and then find where you sink your teeth into. Interesting. One last question, which you are right now. You're a partner at Biencho. Um, I, I believe you certainly must be happy about your new role. But where do you see yourself as now a partner in one of, you know, the big litigation firms in the country? Well, um, I'll be happy to see when they brought me on board here, they sought me out and said they want to grow up, uh, they want to build up an IP docket at Bianca Kihika. And I was more, I talked about it with Paul, he gave me his blessings, and then I joined here, Paul Asimbe, that is. So, one of the things that Bianca Kihika is building up to is arbitration as well. So, that's an area that I've also slowly picked up expertise in. I did training in handling alternative dispute resolution of IP disputes. Interesting. So, so I've done mediation and arbitration of IP matters in the country. There are very few of us in that area. So that's one of the things that we're trying to build up here. So I help in the ADR side of things, but I'm also lifting up intellectual property practice in this law firm. We talk about litigation. Yes, it's a big litigation firm, but the irony is I'm on the side of ADR. Oh. And I've just like the time when I did my practice, the early days of land law practice, I won 99% of all my cases because I also used to do ADR within the cases. If a case comes and I see it's a clear-cut case, we'll discuss it and deal with it without going to court. So I'd love to see IP, which is leading towards litigation being settled out of court because that's the best way you, you solve things easily with everyone. But the other part of it, which is the flip side, is when you have it litigated and resolved through court, then you have jurisprudence and people know this is the position, this is the precedent. In as long as we have judges who understand the case as well and give proper judgments, because we have we still have a huge risk of many judges not appreciating IP, coming up with wrong decisions which are never appealed and it remains the case law of the land when it's the wrong decision. There are many of them we have in Uganda today and we want to avoid that. So with the God-given opportunity that I have, the litigation is to guide us towards proper adjudication of matters here, which will spell out the way um, the IP jurisprudence of the country. Interesting. So, Doctor, we've asked you these tough questions and we've been asking you, so we want to ease it up a bit uh, with uh, maybe very last questions on, we would want to know, Doctor, what makes you happy? Um, that's that's the toughest question of all. <laughs> but I say maybe a simply simple. I'm a family man. I mean, I, I came from a close knit family. I come from a close knit family, and with God's grace, I'm also trying to make my family close knit family. Mm -hmm. And so many times, I sit at the lunch or dinner table with my wife and three kids, see them laughing and happy, and I always thank God that wow, this at the end of the day, this is it. This is what we all live for. This is what we have, what we want to have, to see our kids laughing, that they have a meal at the table. I never take that for granted because I know there are many kids out there that are struggling with meals, that don't have a roof on their heads. Yes. 
So I thank God for that on a daily basis, and that's at the end of the day, that's what makes me happy. Interesting. My family is happy. Okay, okay. So, Doctor, the other thing is, um, do you have like a favorite food, a meal you like? <laughs> you know that uh, when you've left your office, you want to go back home and just once you have it, you feel very okay. I'm very traditional. <laughs> <laughs> um, locally, I would say it's rice and peas. And it's always been just it's, it's always been rice and peas for, oh. for a while. But then I love Chinese. If it's not local, then I, I love Chinese. I also love Indian meals. Wow. Yeah, and I, I thank God I have a a very good cook in my wife who knows how to prepare a good Chinese meal, mixing and the like. Yeah. So yes. But locally, it's rice and peas. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. so Dr. maybe the last two questions sure. is, you've had all these successes, um, had experiences. What is that one thing? Maybe it, it's going to be twofold. What has been, the when you look back, what has kept you going? And and uh, when you look, I know you've, yes, you've talked very profoundly about God, that God has had a, a very footprint in your life big footprint in your life but what's that one thing that has kept you going um to keep driving you to uh, you know going for your goals and at the end of the day i mean you've given part of the answer that it's the grace of god that keeps me going in many ways i think we almost touched on it that uh, uh university i never went into girls and discourse and i think it's the grace of god again in me there um, balancing in between the times I was staying in the hall and the hall of residence so when I would go back home and stay at home but mainly even when I look at it now and I've had these discussions with my mentor and close friend my mentor is Justice Mike Chibita and we meet every weekend have long walks and talk and pray and all these things and I've always said that at the end of the day when I'm grey and retired but not tired Seeing that my kids have gone through the education cycles and they have their own kids and they can play with the grandkids, then I'll know that I've done my part. Yeah, it's, it's not about the chips on the shoulders and the qualifications, but being able to, to support a family through their own cycle of education and they become successful themselves. I mean, I have these discussions with my mom on a regular basis and she always says that she thanks God that by the time God called my dad home, he had seen his kids through school and they had their own kids. I want that for myself as well. And that's what keeps me going, that I can be able to provide for them to and beyond that extent that they would also be able to start providing for themselves. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So, Doctor, last question. What do you want to be remembered for in this legal profession or where you've practiced an area that one can say is, is quite uh, not appreciated or some other people say intellectual property is hard? What is that one thing you want to be remembered there, there are two things, and it's good you ask that question. To me, the legacy of life, which is the discussion I've had with colleagues as well, is not about leaving a building or things like that. I had that reflection in my mind so many times when I was dean. I had I had started this thing with some friends like Arnold Agaba or tapping into the alumni to support back the institution. And we wanted to start building in, bringing in funds. And my dream was for the alumni to fund a grand faculty of law at UCU. It 
never ever happen. But I always think to myself, do I want to be remembered that, oh, that's the building that um, Dr. Kakoza left? It's just one thing. What if an earthquake comes or something over years, or even the, the words themselves, if they call it Kakoza building, if they break off and fall? So at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't want to be remembered in the sense of infrastructure, but in the sense of the lives that I've touched. That's why it's so important that when you add value to another person, that can't be forgotten. The people who forget it, sadly, when you help them out, pay their fees and the like, and within a year they forget about you. But the important thing is when you impact a person in the innermost soul, the way Christ did, I would want to be remembered as someone who helped build a value system in other people. That someone would say, I am where I am because of Dr. Kakosa. That's the most important thing that I've been able to impact someone or some people. That's why I always look so much into mentoring people. That the mistakes I've made, I don't want other people to make those mistakes. Or the journey I've walked in a certain direction is to encourage someone to walk the same journey and know that there's so much light at the end of the tunnel for those people. It's important to be remembered that way. Wow interesting doctor it's been a pleasure thank you very very much and i'm very sure by the time you know uh, you have to leave every work you're doing now that shall always be a remark in, in one or two people's lives yeah. yes so thank you very much doctor and we wish you the very best thank you very much for accepting our invite to host you at the legal milestone thank you thank you for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share all right all right thank you <laughs>